Verse 4, by faith Abel. And then verse 5, by faith Enoch. And then verse 7, by faith Noah. And so on. Whenever you read Hebrews, many things stand out, of course, in all the chapters. But this chapter here, Hebrews 11, is unique amongst all the chapters in the epistle. It is a very special chapter in the epistle, and it's wonderfully crafted by the pen man of the epistle. There are two things particularly that are prominent in it that I want to highlight tonight just by way of introduction, the faithful and the faith that they possess. Now the first thing is the faithful, all these names, I counted 18 names, and there are others alluded to who are not named. That certainly increases the number, manifold. Elders, prophets, women, wanderers, they that pass through the Red Sea. So there are a lot of persons in this chapter. Multitudes, in actual fact. It's full of people. It's abounding with human life. Most of these people are good. A few bad persons stand out and are mentioned too. Cain, for example, and Pharaoh. But mainly they are godly, this multitude. It's a great hall of people. It's like an assembly of the ancients. For by it the elders, and he's referring to the ancient ones, some of whom he he mentions here, others not named of course, by it the elders obtained a good report, the ancient ones, the ones of old, the old timers. Paul puts us in here with them. I want you to reflect on that. I want you to feel what he is bringing us into. Into a multitude of saints. Into an assembly. He's bringing us into a place to be among the dead. Because it's clear about that matter. They're dead. What verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered unto God, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead. He's dead. But yet speaking. Uh, verse 11, sorry, verse 13, These all died in faith. See how he's emphasizing it? He's bringing us among the dead. The departed. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but they saw them afar off and were persuaded of them. That's the people he's bringing us among. And then verse 21, By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, he's bringing it in again. These were dying men and women. These were men and women who died in faith. It's in the back of his mind. They're departed. They've gone on. And verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, slain with the sword. It's very much in his mind their deaths and their dying in faith. 
their continuance up to the end. Now, of course, there's one exception. Enoch. He tells us Enoch was translated that he should not see death. So there is one who hasn't died, but still has gone on and departed and is not in this present world. So they're dead and departed. But you know, the apostle, he never lets us feel that's the end of them. He never once thinks in his mind that they are non-existent. That they have ceased. It is very clear that they still have some connection with us. And Paul feels that as he brings us in amongst them. He's not bringing us among non-entities and non-existent persons. Merely gone, departed, not anymore existing. No, he's bringing us among people who in his mind are still relevant. In some way we still have a connection with them. Them and us. That's the language he uses later on in the epistle. Them and us. There's a connection. Look at verse 4 at the end. By it he being dead. Yet speaketh. Something about Abel still speaking. There's something about Abel that is relevant. And up to date. And even present. They're still with us in some way. And we can go in and out amongst that. Speaking. Because there were witnesses. They gave good witness. They gave a profession of faith. They spoke and they gave testimony when they lived. Like Abel when he offered up his offer. He gave testimony. He's dead. But that witness still speaks on. Still lives on. Still is relevant. They were witnesses to faith. And witnesses of faith. Isn't that the word in verse 2 in actual fact? By it the elders obtained a good report and the word there is witness. The Greek word is actually martyr. Witness. Their faith was a good witness and they were a good witness to their faith. That report, that profession is is still with us. And so we, we go in and out amongst that witness. And whenever you read your Old Testament, that's what you're doing. You're, you're immersing yourself in the witness. And Paul wants us to do that. He wants us to be immersed among the witnesses. He wants to give us a kind of a baptism amongst the faithful. Put us right into the midst of them. He's putting us into the crowd of martyrs. The crowd of witnesses. Now that word martyr, we have come to understand it as those who have witnessed by their death. But that's not the the meaning of the word. It was given to all Christian witnesses whether they died for the faith or didn't. They were martyrs. They were witnesses for Jesus. They were not all slain for their faith. But look at verse 13. What does it say there? They all died in faith. So they didn't all die for faith. 
are because of faith. Many did, but they all die in faith. In faith. So Paul is putting us amongst the slain, the witnesses, this great multitude, this great crowd. And whenever we read our Old Testament scriptures, as I say, that's what we do. We do. We immerse ourselves in the witness. And we have to feel a unity with them, a kinship. They're the ancient fathers. We're connected to them. We mustn't just think, oh, they're Jews, or they're another kind of people, another kind of race. No, no. They were people of faith. No matter about their DNA, and their birth, and wherever their bloodlines were, it was their faith, you see. That's what connects us. That's the DNA of the church. Faith. And that makes us all brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes us all one big body. The congregation. The the body of Christ. So we must always feel a unity with the Old Testament saints. A kinship. I mustn't think that they're of another faith. And of another kind. Of another people. No, that's not the way Paul is dealing with it. He's not saying, you know, that, that's Israel, that's the church in the old, and now we're a totally different body. No, them and us, we're the same. Kinship, unity. And Paul, of course, tells us here how we should be interpreting the Old Testament scriptures as well. So he's given us here lessons on interpretation of all those stories and how we handle them. In chapter 12, verse 1, what does he say? You know, after he has immersed us in them, In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. You see what he's saying? We're surrounded. He surrounded us with them. Because in reality, that's the truth. That's the reality of the matter. He's not just making this up. This is the reality of the matter. We are compassed about. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, they're not dead, they're non-existent, and you know, totally, you know, never thinking about what's happening in the world. No, we're we're compassed about with them. See, it's the witnesses to be bound and enclosed by them. You know, this is a powerful word, compassed. Whenever Paul was tied with chains, he said, "That's the word he used. I'm compassed with chains, bound with chains." And we are bound about with the great cloud of witnesses. Compassed with them. Do you remember the Lord talked about a, a, a millstone? And hanging a millstone. A millstone is a big round thing with, with a big hole in the middle. Imagine getting your head stuck through that. And you're compassed about with a millstone. And you're through into the sea. Compassed about with a millstone. And Paul says we're compassed about by the saints like that. They enclose us and they enfold us. They surround us. And we read the scriptures. Whenever we come together in the name of Christ and in the power of the Spirit. Now, not, not that they're all, you know, present, literally, but in spirit, in the unity of the Spirit and in the oneness of the church throughout all time. God views us as, as together. As together. And so the, the surrounding about by these saints. And Paul has brought us into a chapter to make us feel that. There's no getting away from that. He makes us feel that we're compassed about. Wherefore, seeing now you're compassed about, let us 
Let us. Here's another one of these let us. But that's that's the way, way before us. And notice how he calls them here a great cloud of witnesses. In fact, the translators have put it so great a cloud of witnesses. That's what these men and women of faith are. They were witnesses. And that's how they compass us about with their witness, with their testimony that we have to listen to and take on board. Now that word great, so great a cloud, that could refer to their dignity and honour. They are great witnesses, and of course they were great and noble in faith. But I think it's referring to their number. A numerous, a great cloud of witnesses. The saints are not a few. The saints are not a little handful. No, they're, they're so great a cloud. They're a magnificent cloud. They're a large cloud of witnesses. So he, he's referring to the multitude of them. And he's tried to make us feel something of that as he's worked his way through this, this chapter. And then further, it's brought out by the word cloud. A cloud is a large thing. A cloud is something that's made up of multitudes of little droplets of water. Innumerable, innumerable little droplets of water coming together to form a cloud. And all of these saints are like that. They've all had the Holy Spirit in their life. They've all had the life of God. They've all been to the water of life and to the well of salvation. And together they form a cloud of life, a cloud of moisture, a large, a great cloud. A great cloud. And so they are. And I think it's a cloud of moisture that is being referred to. Although it may be an allusion to a cloud of dust. You know whenever there's a multitude going through the desert. They create up this dust storm. There's a a dust. And you can see the great crowd coming through. In their transit. Because there's the dust cloud has formed. But whatever it's telling us. They're a large body. Now this word cloud. He gets it from the Old Testament. Paul doesn't use very much by way of his own imagination. He likes to use the paint materials of the Old Testament. And uh, concerning the people of God, they're they're described sometimes as a cloud. You have that in Isaiah 60 verse 8. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? The Gentiles will come to the light and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up your eyes round about See them all gathering themselves together. Your sons, your daughters are coming from afar. They're coming to be nursed at thy side. You'll see and they'll flow together. And thine heart shall be enlarged. The abundance of the sea will be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. And then God says, who are these that fly as a cloud? It's the Gentiles coming in. It's the saved. It's those that are following Christ. Those that are coming from the east and the west and the north to follow the Redeemer as a cloud. And that's the word Paul is, he's taking that word out of there. We're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. They've all faith. They've all come to Christ. You see, Paul's bringing us into the cloud. He's bringing us to feel the little droplets of the saints as they drop the testimony of God, as their testimony drops as as Jews. Bringing us in there to feel this, to be surrounded by this cloud, this dew. 
So in Paul's mind, what I'm saying is, they are not non-existent. They live. They still live. Their witness lives. Look at the end of the chapter, chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. Do you see that? They still exist. They're waiting. They're waiting for the whole body to come in, for all the saints to come in. They can't be made perfect without us. They have to wait. They have to wait the resurrection of the dead. They have to wait the last day. They have to wait the return of Christ. Whenever they shall all see him in their resurrected bodies and be like him. We all have to wait that. Because it's a far off. But they died seeing it. Not experiencing it. But seeing it. They died in faith. So these old, old ancients. They were a witness to that. To the end. To what they believed was coming. To the resurrection. To the return of Christ. And the new heavens. And the new earth. So they are still existent. Their bodies have of course gone to the dust. But that doesn't mean they're non-entities. They're very much alive the saints. And this immersion among the witnesses brings us into this cloud of saints. We must often think of the church in all ages. We need to learn this art of not just thinking of ourselves as a little speck here. We're part of a great cloud. Never forget that. The church has always remembered that. In fact, it maybe remembered it too far. I came to have saints days and remembering the saints in a way that was too much beyond scripture. And then it went to tradition that is non-biblical. But nevertheless, there was always a sense of the importance of the, of the saints in all ages. The martyrs. The martyrs. So you must read the Old Testament like Paul. Why all those stories in the Old Testament? Why all that history in the Old Testament? Why all those people? So that you can immerse yourself in their witness. And know that you're not alone. Just as they were not on their own. You're a part of a great body congregation. And that's what I'm trying to make you feel. A very ancient body too. You're part of this cloud. You as Christians are, are making the cloud bigger bigger. It's growing as a body of martyrs and a body of witnesses because you and your Christian faith are an extension of this cloud. And that's what we all are brethren and sisters. We're, we're witnesses aren't we? We're witnesses to Christ. What did the Lord say? You are my witnesses. We're witnesses to the gospel. We're witnesses to the truth. You are my witnesses. Remember Jesus said to the apostles, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Siberia, the uttermost parts of the world. That goes on, that continues. The cloud 
continues to spread as a witness. The apostle said, we are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. The, the faithful end. But there's, there's another thing that stands out about this chapter. And it's a literary device that the apostle Paul uses. A word which he starts the chapter with in, ver- in verse 1. And then repeats constantly throughout. It's a word faith. It occurs, I think, some 24 times. That's what I counted anyway. Having talked about the end, faith at the end of chapter 10, them that believe, them that have faith, it's the same word as faith, to the saving of the soul. And then he tells us what this faith is. He commences then the next chapter with the word, and then he puts that word like a thread into a needle. In the holy pen of inspiration. And he weaves it through all this great cloud. He weaves it through all this multitude of people. Sewing it around them. Weaving through the cloud. The thing that unites them. The thing that makes them one. The thing that makes them to be common. To be a cloud at all. Is faith. By faith Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, the, the people passing through the Red Sea. By faith. And he winds a thread of faith around them to tell us the important thing in their lives. The thing that he wants us to see. That this body, that this large cloud of witnesses is not just a hall of witnesses, not just a hall of martyrs, but a hall of people of faith. And faith is the gem that they all possessed. And that is what we have to look for whenever we go through this chapter, at their faith. Now, just to say a few things about faith, we spoke about the faithful, now the faith. This faith of God's people is multifaceted. And there are different ways of looking at it. The way Paul looks at faith in Hebrews 11 is different from the way he looks at faith in Romans. He looks at it in Romans with the aspect of justification. The forensic aspect of faith. But here in Hebrews, in this chapter anyway, he does not do that so much. Another aspect of faith is it's trust and rest in Jesus Christ. It's praying in Christ's name. That's faith. It's praying to God through a mediator. And he's mentioned these things. But again, that's not the angle he's looking at faith in this chapter. It's a very special angle of faith that he looks at in this chapter. He's looking at it in another way. In a way that he defines in verse 1. And verse 1 is foundational. And that's how he starts this chapter. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the faith that they had. Things that they hoped for, away at the end of time, the resurrection of the dead. It's an eschatological faith. It's a faith that connects them with, with the end times, with the last things, with the glory, 
with the new heavens and the new earth and the new sinless body without any human depravity. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down that we saw in the book of the Revelation, the glory that never ends, the light that never fades, the city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The faith that sees that and brings that as substance and reality to them. Though they don't possess it, yet they believe that they have it. Because of faith. They have the substance. They have the evidence. The assurance of things not seen. Because of faith. So it's that faith that that brings those things to them. In the sense of the conviction and the assurance of them. That's the faith that they had. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Who's seen heaven? You know, they, they were persuaded of these future things. They were convinced of these future things. Faith brought unseen realities to them. And as I said, Paul illustrates that by creation. Because the act of creation was unseen. It was invisible. But faith sees that God did it. It just knows God did it. It has the substance, the evidence of things not seen. So we understand the creation as if we saw it. We have the evidence, we have the substance, we have the confidence. Because we believe God. We are sure, as if we'd seen it with our own eyes. Even sure, because we have the testimony of God. He made all things. But God hasn't only given this testimony of the past. He has, more abundantly than that, given testimony of the future. Of the salvation. Of heaven and of eternal life. Of the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth. Of What he says so much in Isaiah, what he's going to bring his people into, under the imagery of of new land and uh, new things. And faith brings them to to us and makes them real to us. Now obviously our faith varies, congregation. We don't live in the reality of this all the time. You know, sometimes we're so far off we don't even see them, even by faith. We get all caught up in the mundane. And sometimes we're not even thinking of these eternal realities, these future things. We don't have perfect faith, but we ought to. We're invited to have it. That's why we have the Bible to help us to bring these things to us, to faith. Which is why we study the Bible. That's why we have the Christian ministry. Because the Christian ministry is always presenting these things to you, always bringing these things to you, to your faith, for you to see and to view and to be more assured of. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit to work in us. To witness to these things and to the word of God. And make them living realities to our faith. So we have the hope of eternal life. And that's what these men and women had. They had this hope. The substance of things hoped for. They had the promises. They had the hope of the world to come. The everlasting life and the resurrection. Verse 10 there. What does it say concerning Abraham? He looked for a city which hath foundations. His builder and maker is God. That's what he was hoping for. That's what his wandering about in a tent all around the place was about. He's looking for a city. He's waiting for it. Faith brings that reality to him. He doesn't know how it'll come. He doesn't know how he'll get to it. He doesn't know when it'll come. But he knows it's coming. He's looking for it. As we're looking for it too. 
Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So whenever they saw the future, saw what God had promised them, saw what they were heading towards, they really lost interest in the world. The world didn't hold them. The world didn't bind them. They were pilgrims, they were strangers. They didn't get caught up in the world too much because the heavenly things were so brought real to them by faith. That's the faith that we ought to have. And that's the faith that Paul is bringing out here, that that aspect of saving faith. So they didn't live for the world. They lived in the light of the eternal realities. And in the light of those eternal realities, they behaved in a certain way in the world. That was Abel. He had to behave in a certain way in the world. He, He had to make an offering of blood. There's something about that. Connecting him with the eternal realities that he had to do that. But Cain, he didn't care. He thought he could do something nice, something better, something more, uh, you know, out of human reason. He had no faith connection. He had no sense of the eternal world and of realities beyond. And then the same with Enoch and Noah and Abraham. And they accepted death. I mean, Abel died young probably. What a waste of life, people say, the world says. Oh, what a sad end. You know that man, he just his life was cut out early and you know that was the end of him. What an awful way to go, isn't that sad? That's not what the Bible says. He died in faith. He's something better. He's something beyond. Abel was no loser. None of these were losers. Whenever Moses gave up Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's money and all Pharaoh's name and all of that, and he went out amongst that you know, beggarly crew of Israelites. He was no loser. He chose Christ and his people. And he was no loser because he saw things hoped for. He had evidence of things not seen. He was assured of heaven and the resurrection and the age to come and that God had prepared better things from him. He didn't know when he was going to get them. He didn't know how he was going to get them. He didn't know how long he'd have to wait. He didn't know how far the resurrection was away, but they were persuaded. They had faith. And that's what unites them all. In actual fact, they saw Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Seeing afar off. They could see afar off, you see. They saw Christ afar off. Hundreds of years before he was born. Hundreds of years before he was manifest in flesh and brought in the everlasting salvation. Thousands of years before he brings in the last day and the resurrection of life. But they saw it. And rejoiced to see it. And died in the light of it. Because they had this faith, you see, that brought these eternal realities near to their heart. And because they had this faith that brought these eternal realities to them. You know what? They couldn't go back. They could never go back. When you have this faith, you can never go back. You can never return to the old when you have this faith that brings eternal realities to your heart. 
There's no way you can go back. They believe to the end. They believe to the saving of the soul. What does he say there at the end of chapter 10? We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And then he goes through all these people who believe like that, who have faith like that, a faith that cannot go back. Brethren and sisters, if we have true saving faith, we can never go back. This faith never draws back. Would Moses give up heaven for Pharaoh and riches? Would he sacrifice the resurrection of the just for the pleasures of sin for a season? Would Moses do that? No, there's no way he would do that. Sacrifice it all for the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses didn't have the faith that goes back. Verse 15, Hebrews 11. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country, but they weren't. That wasn't the thing that was on the mind, the country that they left. If they had been mindful of that country, if that had been the thing that had been brought before them, all the realities of the country that they left, if that had been the thing brought to them, they might have went back. But that wasn't the thing that was brought to them. It was a heavenly country in all its reality that was brought to them. And they couldn't go back. If they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. I mean, God has prepared for them a city. He gives them the faith that connects them with that city. He's not going to lose them. He's going to draw them. He's going to bring them to that city. Not one will be lost. And this faith connects them to that city. So it's always pulling them. Always drawing them. And they can never go back. You see, the world does not walk by faith, brethren and sisters. It walks by sight. It's blind to God's word and to God's promises. You see, the world has to see with their eyes. And you just can't see Christ with your eyes. You're not going to see Christ with your eyes. You're not going to see heaven with your eyes. You're not going to see the resurrection of the dead with your eyes. Not until the time comes, of course. But now you're not going to see them that way. You see them by faith. You can't see Christ at God's right hand now. You can't see the eternal life and and heaven now. And because people can't see these things, they think they're non-existent, they think they're not important. But in actual fact, they are the eternal realities. You see what you see here? All of this? It's for the burning. This isn't going to last. These aren't the eternal realities. These aren't the, the eternal truths and the spiritual things that God has prepared for his people. Everything you see with your eye is for the burning. We have to see things that are eternal. The real realities of the eternal world. The world is passing away and only Christ at God's right hand remains. And all that he has brought for his people. And that's what faith sees and looks to and takes hold of and possesses and embraces. And 
Paul has been preaching all about the right hand and all the eternal realities that are there in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying faith brings these things near to us. So that's the faith he's describing. It's concerning that faith that David prayed whenever he said, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. He means the promises. They are the wondrous things in the law of God. The realities. The eternal realities. The eternal truths. He says I want to see them. I want them to be brought near to me. I want to have the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Open thou mine eyes. He's talking about the eyes of faith. He wants them brought to his sight more clearly. To see things that are far off a little more closely. And especially Christ. Because all the wonderful things of the word of God are contained in Jesus Christ. And David wants to see Christ. Faith brings Christ near. Faith makes Christ real to us. Present to us. And when he is real to us, our hearts are drawn more and more to him. And when he's real to us, then we can live and die like these heroes in Hebrews 11. Whom having not seen, you love. You love him. You've never seen him, but you love him. Whom having not seen, you love, yet believing. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. They had joy in believing. Joy and see. And that's what we need to have more light. Better sight. Greater faith. There are two prayers I, I think that the Christian church should constantly be praying. Open thou mine eyes. That I may see these things. And Lord. Increase our faith.